We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew today, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. Matthew 26 is where we're going to be. Uh, you're welcome to use the handout as well. We are going to spend most of our time really stuck to this passage, so your sheet should be sufficient uh, if you hadn't brought a Bible, but you're welcome to uh, any of the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you as well. So again, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, let me read God's Word for us this morning before we dive in. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word for us. It's so good uh, to have Mamadou and Jim with us this morning because it reminds us that the gospel is so much bigger than us, that the kingdom is extending far beyond um, the countries and cultures that somehow you envision as an American Christian. If you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, you've probably had this experience where you go and I think a few things happen. One, your eyes are opened. Uh, to the way that the gospel is on the move in ways that maybe you don't realize, and the way that people are coming to Christ, uh, that uh, here in America, sometimes it feels like we are losing the battle, and yet the battle's being won all over the world, and that's deeply encouraging. I think the other thing that can happen is you begin to see the way that the gospel penetrates cultures uh, that make you think differently about your own and think differently about what worship looks like and what church looks like because it looks different in other cultures other than America. And then the last thing is then it causes you to think differently about what it looks like to live as an American here. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you come back from another country and then you begin to get back to life here and you think, wait a minute, what have I been doing? <laughs> what does the kingdom look like here? Why can't I, as a Christian, be on the same kind of mission that I was for this week or two or three? Why can't I do that here and now? And I think it's a great question. But if you're like me, if you've ever been on one of these trips or spent you know, a summer abroad or anything like that, what happens is over time, whatever kind of stirring in your heart and this new way of living, over time begins to slowly dissipate and suddenly you find yourself just kind of right back to where you were before. Has anybody had that experience? 
we don't realize just how enculturated our Christianity really is. And this is true for anyone, but it's certainly true for us in the Western world and as American evangelical Christians. And as you think about what it would look like for mission to happen here in the United States, I think one of the reasons that it's difficult is because it wouldn't just be about reaching non-Christians. It would be about that, but if a revival happened in the United States, particularly, you know what, we'll just do this. If a revival happened in Dallas, Texas, where do you think that revival would start? Certainly, it would be non-Christians, but I would argue that it would start here, in churches, because it's not just about non-Christians in America who need revival. It's for Christians as well, or at least people who call themselves Christians. In a lecture that Tim Keller gave some years ago on revival, he recognized that there's really three categories that need to be reached in a revival. And one is certainly the non-Christian, but he recognized two other categories. There's also another category, and that would be a nominal Christian. Maybe you've heard that term before. A nominal Christian is someone who maybe attends church, and maybe in a culture like ours, maybe that's attending church on Christmas and Easter, certain holidays, but there's really been no genuine conversion in their heart. They've never truly received the gospel. For, for them, Christianity is something that you just do and maybe check off the box once or twice a year, but there's no personal relationship with Jesus. That's a nominal Christian. But then he also recognized a third category. It's the category that I want to spend some time on today. And it's what he calls sleepy Christians. You know what a sleepy Christian is? This is someone who calls himself a Christian. And, and by all accounts may genuinely be a follower of Jesus, but they have been lulled into a spiritual slumber. And maybe they even go to church every single Sunday. But there really isn't a deep walk with the Father. They might go to church every single Sunday, and they may even come to a Bible study like this. But in terms of really putting the gospel into daily practice and applying it to all of life, it's just not there. They're a, it's almost like they're sleepwalking through the Christian faith. And in this lecture, Keller gives a few questions. I want you to read for you. A few questions of how you might know you're a sleepy Christian. Okay, so I want to read just a few of them for you, and I'll have Elaine send the full list out to you, because I think they're actually really helpful. I'm just going to, I don't, we have time to get into all of them, but let me just read a few of them. Questions designed, he says, to wake up sleepy Christians, okay? The first he asks is, how real has God been this week to your heart? It's a great question. Simple question. By the way, all of these are very simple questions. How real has God been to your heart this week? Second question he asks, how clear and vivid is your assurance of God's forgiveness? In other words, is the forgiveness that's yours in the gospel? How real is that to you right now? Do you really believe that? Have you really received that truly today? Not just in general, not just like out here intellectually, yes, I, I know, God forgave, no, but do you, do you really receive that? Have you received that? Do you experience that today? 
Have you been finding Scripture to be alive and active? One of the things that the Bible tells us that's living and active. Is that true in your life right now? Is the, is the Bible living and active to you? Uh, and then I'll just give you one more. Are you finding God's grace more glorious and more moving today than you have in the past? If part of our Christian walk is that we're constantly growing in grace, is God's grace to you, would you say it is actually more potent to you, more alive, more real to you than it's been in the past? These are questions, Keller says, are designed to wake up sleepy Christians. And so my question for you is the same question I have for me. So I read this list. Just how sleepy am I really? Have I allowed just the kind of normalcy of living in a culturally Christian place like Dallas, which we still are, by the way, to kind of seep into me and I've been lulled into a spiritual slumber. This morning as we look at this passage in Matthew 26, we're going to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed three times. It's a prayer that he prayed that as we get into it, we will see the collision of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus and what it looks like to earnestly pray for our desires and yet submit to the will of the Father. But what I want to do with you this morning is not just look at Jesus' prayer, but I actually want to spend a lot of time on just how desperate Jesus is in this moment. And I want to compare that to the disciples who have no clue what's about to happen. And they sleep through the whole thing. And what I want us to do is I want us to wrestle. Are we aware today about what really is at stake? As sometimes Christians who maybe can be sleepy, have we forgotten what's before us? As the, before the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane could not really appreciate that Jesus was about to go to the cross, can we appreciate that Jesus is about to return? And Jesus' words to his disciples are the same for us, I think, today, which are, keep watch. Wake up, because he's coming again. So the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples, I want us to look, he says, watch and pray. I want to look at verse 36, and I'll, I want to set the stage for you. If you've grown up in church, you've grown up around the story of the gospel, you might be familiar with this story, but I want you to really imagine it this morning, because if you can't really put yourself there, you can't really feel just how um, stark this contrast really is. Jesus about to go to the cross, praying in agony for the cup of wrath to pass from him, and here are his disciples, and they cannot keep watch one hour. They keep falling asleep. He says, watch and pray. Look with me, verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here, well, I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just um, walked through a week with his disciples in Jerusalem. He knows what is about to happen. It has become all too real to him the mission that God has sent him on. And we're told that he takes Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, the 12 disciples. These are the three that he has the most intimate relationship with. 
he knows what's about to happen. And just like any man, and you're probably this way, that if you find yourself really put into a corner, he goes to the people he can trust the most. Peter, the two sons of Zebedee. We're told that he is sorrowful and he is troubled. And we must look at that and really deal with the full humanity of Jesus. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, that's part of the mystery of faith. But if it doesn't work, there is no cross, there is no salvation, there is no resurrection, there is no hope. And the first 400 years of the church argued over how this works. And we see both things here in this passage. And you have to appreciate both. If you do not think that Jesus was fully man, he could not have truly died on the cross. But if he wasn't fully God, we cannot truly believe that he was sinless and conquered death. Here we see Jesus, he really was sorrowful. He really was troubled. I want you to imagine what it must have been like for our Lord Jesus to know what is about to come and what kind of true human emotions must have fled his heart. God's word tells us that he was sorrowful and troubled. And you can see that he has a great sense of urgency for the moment. He knows what is about to happen. And yet here are his disciples. Verse 38. He says to his disciples, particularly Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Have you ever experienced that kind of sorrow? That kind of depth of even depression. That kind of anxiety. Truly the weight of the world is weighing down on our Lord Jesus. My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He, he confides in his brothers. He confides in these disciples. He says, look, I am, I am sorrowful. I am troubled. Even to the point of death, here is what I need from you. Now, again, you put yourself in the, in the situation, and you think, well, I mean, man, if I would have been there, I mean, I, I would have been different, right? I mean, this is Jesus. And look, if Jesus was standing in front of me, and he told me, like, he's, he's sorrowful to the point of death, and he said, look, I've got one thing I'm asking for you. Would you please stay up and keep watch with me? I would have done it. I don't know. I think in so many ways, it's exactly what he's asking of us today. And how easy is it for us to be lulled into slumber? We'll talk more about that in just a second. He asked them to keep watch. That word keep watch, it's an interesting word. It's a word we don't use a lot today. It's almost a military term, the idea of, of stand at your post, be alert, be ready for action. But literally in the Greek, it just means stay awake. Uh, be alive. Be alive. Stay awake. Be alert. Be ready for whatever's going to come. Keep watch. Almost like being a guard on a post or a sentry. Keep watch with me, Jesus says. In verse 40, he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Now, again, just think about this. 
Here is Jesus. Here's his disciples. All they heard Jesus preach, all they saw Jesus do, every miracle he performed. Jesus tells them, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. Keep watch. And yet, what are they doing? They're sleeping. Why? Have you ever been tired? Maybe you're tired now. Have you ever been sleepy? Sleep can be a very powerful thing. There's a reason why they use sleep deprivation as torture, right? When you find yourself just so tired, there's almost nothing you can do. It can be a powerful thing. And I think there's probably a reason here that is practical. They were probably really tired. But I think there's probably a deeper reason, too. I think they did not appreciate the gravity of the moment. How could they? They could not appreciate. We know that they couldn't appreciate. We know that they didn't truly understand at this point what Jesus really came to do. It's one of the things about the disciples that's easy to miss. That even though they heard everything Jesus preached, they still didn't quite get it. They didn't understand that Jesus really was going to die. That he really came to die on the cross that he was going to conquer sin and death on the third day. He told them those things, but they couldn't really receive it. They couldn't fully appreciate it. So here's the question for you and for me, for those of you who call yourself Christians. Do you really appreciate what Jesus did and what he said? And do you really appreciate that there's still one thing left that he promised to do? that he is still going to do. He's going to come back. And he's called us to stay awake, to be alert, to keep watch, to not be lulled into slumber. He says, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, verse 31, that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. You will, you will be sleepy. You will be lulled again. He says, watch and pray. Don't enter in temptation. The notice was the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what I want you to begin to see is I think there's something going on here. We're beginning to see that this idea of keeping watch is not just a physical command. It's not simply that Jesus is asking them to just stay physically awake. But I think there's something deeper here, something spiritual and something for us this morning, 2,000 years later. Deep down, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Brothers, I think many of us in this room and in the American church have a very willing spirit. We want to do what Jesus has asked us to do. But the truth is, the flesh is weak. And if we put ourselves in this exact same situation, I think we would be no different than disciples. Because many of us find ourselves in the exact same place today. We have been lulled into a spiritual slumber. What does that look like? What's it look like to be a sleepy Christian? Well, I think to be a sleepy Christian is to be the kind of Christian that knows the right things to say, even knows the right things to believe, 
even could recite, just probably like the disciples could, what Jesus said about the gospel. But because of this life and because of all of the burdens that you and I bear, because of even everything that right now, and I'm about to say this word, and now I'm going to lose you, but maybe it proves its point, on your calendar, and every appointment that you have before you today, and every conversation that you know you have to have but don't want to, and every difficulty that you have in every relationship that God's given you, uh, whether it's your children or your wife or a neighbor or a friend, because of the burdens that we feel, we are exhausted. And though the flesh is willing, our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. And if you're like me, you will try to fight most of your battles today on your own because your spirit is willing. But what you will find is your flesh is weak. And the more that you go through this life on your own, trying to contend with the flesh, with your own flesh, you will get tired. You will get exhausted. And if you're like me, when you get tired, what do you do as a man? What do you do? You try harder. You try to gut it out. And that just makes you more exhausted and more exhausted and more exhausted. I think so many of us are honestly, we're sleepy Christians because we have worn ourselves out trying to fight flesh with the flesh. And Jesus says, the spirit's welling, but your flesh is weak. You cannot do it on your own. And if you find yourself sleepy, you are vulnerable. The other reason why I think we've been lulled into spiritual slumber is then everything in this world that offers a moment or a uh, uh, just a, an ounce of rest we just run to. And what we find is it's not real rest, it's just diversion. It's just a way to distract yourself from just how exhausting this life can be. But then what happens? The moment that little thing is gone, you're right back to the exhaustion of life. Jesus also said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers, I think we're asleep because we try to do everything on our own, practically. We know the right things to say and the right things to do, but practically we live a Christianity that is so often devoid of Christ. And Jesus says, keep watch, keep watch. Stay awake because he's coming again. The second thing we see in Jesus in this passage is we see his prayer. And that's where I want to end before you go to your tables, just briefly. And in his prayer, we see the humanity and the divinity of Jesus collide. And we have to see both. You can't really appreciate what's happening in this short prayer that Jesus prays earnestly three times. 
Verse 39, going further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So I want to look at this prayer in two parts. The first part I want to look at briefly is the honesty of the first part of the prayer. Let this cup pass from me. Here we see, I think, the humanity of Jesus. The cup that Jesus is praying for for it to pass from him is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was in agony, he was sorrowful, he was troubled, he was praying with such earnestness that he was sweating drops of blood, not because he was going to simply die, although that might be enough to make any of us anxious. But it wasn't simply death that Jesus was in agony over. It was the very wrath of God that he knew God had called him to bear for you and me. It wasn't simply that he was going to die, it was that he was going to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And we see this in his prayer, let this cup pass from me. It's a cup that had been talked about throughout the Old Testament. The cup of wrath that would be poured out in judgment on God's people for their sins. We see this in Isaiah 51 verse 17. Listen to the language here. I think this is amazing. Isaiah 51 verse 17. You can write that down because it's a great verse to you to go back to. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The prophet Isaiah says, Wake up. Wake up, Israel. God's wrath is coming. We serve a holy and righteous God who must be just. Wake up. Wake up from your slumber. Wake up from your sin. The cup of wrath is coming. This is the cup that Jesus was asking the Father to allow to pass from him. He said, wait a minute. This is Jesus. This is the one who knows what he's supposed to do. This is the one who told his disciples over and over again that he had to go to the cross, that he was going to die, then the third day he would rise again. How can he ask the Father that there would be any other way to do this? Because here I think we see the full humanity of Jesus. He knows what is about to happen. And look with me, he he prays with great sincerity and earnest three times that it would pass from him. Look again. Verse 42, again, he prayed for a second time. My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Then verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. What I think this teaches us, brothers, is that we can bring our needs to the Father. However heavy, whatever burden, however large, however small, Whatever that you feel like is weighing you down this morning and causing you to be exhausted, you can and should and have been invited to bring that burden to the Father, to ask that he would take that burden from you, that he would bear it for you. 
We see this in Jesus. If it would be possible, take this cup from me, but the prayer doesn't end there. It ends, but nevertheless, your will be done. We see that again twice in the prayer. We're told that he prayed the same words a third time. Look again, verse 39. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then again, verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In bringing the sincerity and earnestness of this great burden that Jesus knows he is about to bear. And ask him, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. With the same kind of earnestness and sincerity and faith, Jesus prays, your will be done. And if you were with us on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, Mark Davis, our senior pastor, preached a phenomenal sermon on this very prayer. What it looks like to pray for God's will to be done. That ultimately that is a prayer of true faith. It's not a cop-out to submit ourselves, to bring every desire, every burden, every weight to God and to lay it at his feet and say, take this from me and let your will be done is a prayer of faith. It's not a cop-out. It's submitting our very lives to the will of the Father and trusting that not only is he a Father who is able, but that he's also a Father who's willing and who loves us, knows our every need, and knows what is good. Nevertheless, let your will be done. And if you know the story of the gospel, you know what the Father's will was. Jesus prayed a prayer. If it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. And the Father heard his prayer. But what was his answer? His answer was no. There is no other way. Because I love my people, I am going to give you this cup. And there on the cross, Jesus drank it down to the dregs. Every last drop of the wrath of God. He died in your place and for your sin. And he rose again to conquer it completely. Have you truly received that good news? That's the first question. The second question is if you have, will you truly live out of that good news today? That he really did pay it all for you. And that that truth changes everything. Everything that you would do today, every conversation, every burden that you bear, every doubt, every fear, all of it changes because Jesus died on the cross. And all of it has changed because the story's not over. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will make all things new. Do you believe that? If you do, Jesus says, again, wake up. Stay awake. Be alert. Be on guard. Because he is coming again. And he's called us 
to wake up from our slumber, to lay every burden at his feet, and to say, your will be done. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Lord, how can we, how can we truly say thank you for what you have done for us? How can we as human beings 2,000 years later, who hear these words again, and for some of us very familiar and other of us less so, how can we really now respond? How can we think about these words and then think about just the reality of life that every one of us faces today? And burdens big and small. How can we actually live it out? And so, Lord, I pray that if the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, that you would send your Spirit to wake us up. That you would send your Spirit to cause us to think of the gospel new every day. To truly receive new mercies every day. So much so that those mercies would change us and apply to every part of life. So Lord, help us not to go on living life saying one thing and yet living another. To not live a life as duplicitous Christians, but help us to live every day in the fullness of the forgiveness that you've given us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And help us to submit every burden and in so doing, also submit our very lives to your will. And to walk in your will today and every day, knowing that you, Jesus, one day will come again. Be with my brothers now as they discuss these things. Would you, Holy Spirit, guide their conversations and help them to walk in the freedom and the rest that is ours in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.